What happens when you hit the caregiver trifecta? Or hot pants in Hollywood cares for mom and dad? Or just to make sure the doctors truly understand your wishes, you write DNR on your stomach just before being carted off to the hospital. You might be surprised. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello everybody, this is Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. I have a really interesting guest with us here today. Her name is Susan Silver, originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. She's actually one of those really interesting trailblazing comedy writer and cultural communicators and has written for some of the shows like Mary Tyler Moore, The Bob Newhart Show. And I have to ask you about Daryl, Daryl, and Daryl on The Bob Newhart Show, (laughs) my favorites, Maud, The Partridge Family, Square Pegs among many others. And she's also appeared on CNN, HLN, The Good Day Show New York, Today, and written for the New York Times and Refinery uh, 29, not 21. And if that hasn't been enough, she's also been a lecturer and a professor or teacher of comedy and writing at the Television Academy, the New School, the Poly Center, the SCAD, and Brandeis University. She's also the author of a book that had me laughing from the beginning all the way to the end, even with the sad parts. Actually, the sad parts made me cry a little bit. And that is called Hot Pants in Hollywood, where she includes the story of her life. And I would say the title gives away a little bit of it, <laughs> but, <laughs> but not too much. Hot Pants were more revealing than, uh, than the story, but it was a great book. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. She's also the columnist for, or the writer for a columnist called In Search of Mr. Adequate. So I'm married. So I think I've got more than adequate, I think, for now. (laughs) But we won't go into that either. That's TMI. So with that, Susan, I want to say thank you for joining us. There's so much that you shared in your story, not just your life, but your parents and taking care of them as they got older. And I found that really endearing and special. Thank you so much. It was, as an only child, it was both my responsibility, but my dear pleasure as an adult person to reconnect with my parents, as difficult as it was. And I love what you do and how you give people tips. And I I have some that are funny, some that are sad, but it's an experience that many of us go through. And some of us are lucky enough to have that experience. Well, as I say, I think that life is full of laughter and tears, and you can't have one without the other. It's a balance. This is true. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is you're in the world of entertainment, but you're a solopreneur, you're an entrepreneur, and a business of you and and what you do and your craft. And although many people are employed by bigger corporations or smaller ones, the challenge of those of us that are out there killing our own food, hunting for our own food is what I really want to call it. You don't want to kill the customer. You you have to hunt for them is different when you have to then also stop and think, 
mom and dad need my help. You know, what do I do? Is it feast or famine? Do I take care of them or just let them wither and die? Or do I go over and, and rescue them? What are some of the things that you did to survive through that period? Well, first of all, I had retired by then. I, I started writing at a very young age. And in 1989, I was in California. I was divorced. We had a writer's guild strike and I took a vacation in New York and I never went back. So I kind of retired early from the biz after 20 years. And I took a year off to kind of find out what I wanted to do. And I reinvented myself. I went to work for Holocaust-related organizations, the Anti-Defamation League. Mm. I ran a speaker's bureau for two years. And then I was the UN observer for the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And then the three years of hell came where my mom got sick, I got sick, and my dad got sick. And that was the uh, the trial of my time. But I was uh, I didn't have to worry, thank God, about working during that time. I don't know how I would have done it. You hit the trifecta. I mean, really, not in in a good way, but yeah, well, I mean, maybe there's some balance on both, right? <laughs> well, as an only child and as someone, I lived in New York and my parents lived in Wisconsin and the travel was a nightmare. And yeah, I talk about it in the book. I will say as, as fun as the book is and as showbiz and sexy and whatever, grown men have cried at the part about my daddy. They tell me that all the time. I was very, very close to my father. And you know, from reading the book, the hardest decision I ever made in my life was having to place him in a care facility, which I promised I never would do. The worst day of my life was when I had to, it was in the same building, thank God, where my mother lived. But as we were wheeling him away, he reached out for the key on the desk. And I said, Daddy, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm coming back, aren't I? Oh. I've never gotten over that moment because my mom couldn't handle it at the time. He, he had dementia after a fall and he became difficult. It's a difficult thing. And I worry about myself because I have no family. So I, uh, I always tell the doorman in my building, if there's a funny smell, come in. It means I've... Uh, <laughs> died in the bedroom. But other than that, the it's worms are crawling in, right? All the time. I'm worried about it all the time. Yeah. So I get the conversations at that stage of, of life with our parents and having to make those difficult decisions are they're heart wrenching. They're not they're you not have to have anymore. it though. You have to have that discussion. And I, I worry about anybody who doesn't have it, then they don't know what to do. Both my parents had a uh do not resuscitate and all that stuff. And I still had to make those decisions. I have one. I have it placed everywhere around my apartment. I had a friend who was 90 and she told me every time she went into the hospital, she wrote on her stomach, do not resuscitate because she didn't want them to make a mistake. I've got all these plans and I'm, I belong to Compassionate Choices, which I believe in assisted death. And I, I already have my plan out. So that's another topic. <laughs> well, that, that's really, you know, I never heard of anybody actually writing on their stomach. DNA I know. Or DNA. I love it. I kind of, I have kind of picture walking into your apartment and probably seeing the poster uh, on the wall. Yeah, do not resuscitate. Says, here's my doctor. Here's my best friend. Here's do not resuscitate. Call doctor. Yeah. But she put it on her stomach, which I thought was kind of fun. It's kind of like when they say doctors are operating on different limbs, they draw on. Yes, on, you on have limbs. to. There's too many. Yeah, don't take the wrong arm. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I, I had a, an accident a number of years ago where they had to do some surgery on my legs and they and each each leg had a different need. So, but they actually wrote in in ink on oh my, my leg. Oh yeah, Knee here, ankle there. I was like, they wrote it. Ooh, then they, they the doctor. It. Yeah, yeah. The the hospital. They were either less less equipped than we think, or they were very smart. I don't know. I'm I'm gonna hope that they were smart. 
<laughs> supposed to Did it turn out okay. I'm walking. I'm ambulatory, so that's good. That's all that I needed to worry about. There you go. But you said that your dad had dementia after fall. He did not have dementia before the fall. Well, interestingly enough, because I I did live far away, I wasn't there to notice it. After he passed and I went and did all the cleaning up, I saw he had written little notes to himself where things were and stuff like that. So he had fallen when he was 88. He was in good health. He broke his hip and coming out of the surgery, he became disoriented and, and difficult and that was the beginning of it. So I don't know if it was the um, anesthetic that did it or if what my mother said he had started a little bit to lose it, but it was precipitated mostly by the fall. And yeah, it was, uh, as I said, I was really close with my dad and they were really smart enough to sell their house when they were appropriate age, to move into an apartment, to sell the apartment after my mom had had a stroke when she was 86. They moved into a tri-community thing where all their friends from grade school were there in Milwaukee. It what was fun. Right? Yeah, it was great. They knew people from kindergarten, but there was an independent living, assisted living, and then there was the home, which we uh, promised we'd never go to, but... Continued care, they call that, where you start in it. Yeah. And back in the day also, insurance was difficult. My dad had paid for long care, long-term care forever but it had to be certified through agencies. And the women that were available in Milwaukee were these lovely women who had worked through a church and they weren't certified. And it was a mess. By the time my mom was ill, two years later, I was able to get real agency and some wonderful Filipino ladies who are known for this in Chicago and Milwaukee. They, they are wonderful. And I was able to get that for her. But for my dad, I wasn't, which is why I had to do that awful thing. You know, that's kind of interesting. You, you mentioned that the AIDS that the long-term care insurance would accept had to be certified. With my parents' long-term care, they did not have to be certified. It was, you know, things have changed. I don't think that's true of all insurance plans or programs, which I understand. But, you know, in my experience, if you have somebody who has a good head on their shoulders, knows the difference between right and wrong, is willing to listen, you have the ability to integrate them and, and watch what's going on. I mean, I had cameras all over our house, not so much that I didn't trust the aides, oh, but, wow. but I, you know, it was one in the bedroom. There was one. That when I, was this, Nance? I was in Connecticut and my parents were in Florida. So I did this long distance as well. And but, when was Oh, well, dad died in 2019 at 99. And my mom just passed away a year ago at 91. But wow. those those cameras were there and ran 24-7. And I would check in them on and my lead aide would also monitor them when when I wasn't there. And it was we wow. weren't obsessive about it. No, I, I think that's great. I never thought of that. What I used to do was call the home every night to make sure that the night person knew what the day person had told me. And I talked twice a, a day. But when I was able to get these wonderful Filipino ladies for my mom, that was a huge difference. So I've already put in place, I have my elder geriatric person who uh, my business manager knows to call and get them in for me. But as I said, I've made my plan because both my parents were perfectly fine mentally until 89, and I don't want to go there. I think that's a fear that most of us have, that it's if it's happened to a parent, it's going to happen to us. Not necessarily. But things things do. As I said, I, I've almost died twice, once of cancer and once of this bizarre accident I had. I was flying on the way home a year after my dad had passed. And I was flying home in the Jewish faith we bury and we dedicate the gravestone a year later. And I got 
a terrible pain. And it turned out I had swallowed the shard of a chopstick of food I had ordered in the night before, and it had perforated my stomach. And flying on the plane had built up the pressure. So I was taken to the same hospital where my dad and mom were prior to that. And I almost died. And my mom had kind of lost it by then. So she and her aide would come, but that was of no help. Yeah. I mean, physically, I know what to do, but mentally, I don't want to be there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, that's even, I think about you cared for your dad, he passed, you have this near-death experience situation that was life-threatening, and you're also caring for your mom, and your mom didn't necessarily know what was going on. And my mom was a person who, if if she had a piece of jewelry on or a coat or something, I said, oh, I love that. The next day, she gave it to me. I mean, that's the kind of she was. But when she was Gaga, she got pissed at me that I was in the hospital. And she said, well, who's going to take care of me if you're sick? (laughs) She was worried about it. Who was going to make the nice um, Shiva when she goes like we did for my dad? And I was like, get her out of here. I'll take care of that situation now, right? Before I needed $5 for a magazine in the hospital and she wouldn't give it to me. It was like, oh my goodness, that's funny. Inhabiting my mother. This is not my mother. Humor, again, as we said, is the only thing that got me through. So I'm really interested because even though you had been retired, I mean, you're still in the celebrity world. And I mean, did you see differences over the course of your career on how people handled that or how the community of individuals, the creatives really around you reacted to people who were declining? I think of the stories of like Mary Tyler Moore became even more ill. She was married to a doctor, which is the first rule. When I was young, I wanted to marry a guy in the diamond business. Now, marry a doctor. That is number one. <laughs> plan for your plan for your demise. You want him standing by the bed at all times. You know, he doesn't have to do anything else. Just stand there and be looking at you. That was a smart move on on her part. I mean, did you actually see how other individuals who were, I'll put in quotes, you know, celebrities in your community behaved with their parents or did they, did they not? No, I never did. But to tell you the truth, when you have money, all is possible, right? I mean, you hire people. For example, I'll give you an example. I'm not proud of it, but when I was a kid, my mother took my grandpa in, which my father always, you know, loved her for, my my Zadie, as we call him, lived with them in my room at, when I was a grown-up. And then when I was married, my husband's father started to have dementia and he disappeared a couple of times and they found him and my husband wanted to have him come live with us, but I, I couldn't handle it. And that was a terrible thing that I couldn't. He took his own mother in later after we were divorced. And, and that's a wonderful thing. But most people who have money, they, they can have help and get an apartment and set their family up and stuff like that. When my dad got ill and the insurance wouldn't pay for the AIDS, it was a problem for us too. And that, thank God that's changed. And, and there are these wonderful organizations that as I say, in Chicago, I don't know why it is in Chicago and Milwaukee, they're all Filipino ladies and they work very hard. They send their money back to their family and then they leave. That's the only problem is you love them and they're great. And then after two years, they leave and another one comes in. So my mother had three different ones, but they were all fabulous. You mentioned, you know, when you have money, all things are possible. Not, I'm going to like challenge you there because that's not always the case. You look at the story of the Astors, you know, Mrs. Astor who yeah. had, or oh, no, it was, it was the Whitney's, Mrs. Whitney in New York had all sorts of um, physical abuse that was going on. Oh, elder abuse. Yeah, elder abuse, which was also by, you know, an adult child of hers and community that was. I mean, that's why I I have this woman. I had a friend, my best friend who had Alzheimer's and took me about 
a year to convince her husband that she did. And then I hired this woman to facilitate. And the sad thing is he had all the money in the world and he still put her in a place, which is terrible. But anyway, no, you have to have somebody check on things. When my dad was in the hospital, when he broke his hip, I hired a guy, an aide to sit outside the room just because my dad was having such bad reaction to the anesthetic. He tried to get out of bed and pull the uh, IV out and stuff like that. So I hired this guy. My father was always worried about money. So he said, how much are you paying that guy? And I said, $5 a day, daddy. (laughs) Of course I wasn't, but I also couldn't get my dad to get rid of the car. That's the hard part. Oh my God, to get your parents to stop driving. And finally, I said to my father, do you know how much it costs to park that car every night in the building? He said, no, how much? And I made up some huge number. He said, oh, we better get rid of the car. You know, it's funny you should say that. I did something similar with my dad because we were worried about him driving. And he used to be, he used to be talking about humor. Maybe it wasn't so funny at the time. He was the kind of guy, and I grew up in Long Island, that would, when he was commuting from Woodside, where his factory was back to our home on the island, he would bump the rear bumper of the car in front of him if he if the car wasn't going fast enough on the LIE. And oh then God. if somebody got upset and he played college ball and had been drafted for the Steelers, he was, I mean, he wasn't a heavy set guy, but he was solid. I mean, his upper body was like a brick. Road rage. He would get, get he would car. get out of the car and say, You got a problem? Oh my <laughs> God. Now they shoot him. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's another time and, and place, boy. Yeah, but <laughs> but he would, you know, I said the same thing. I said, you know, dad, you know, look at there's two things. One, he always took my mother everywhere with him, and mom had the onset of dementia. And I said, I know you drive carefully. I drive 35 miles an hour. It's like 35 miles an hour down the road is not safe necessarily, even in Florida. But what would happen if somebody broadsided you, not your fault, and hit mom and she died? Could you live with that? And then the other was, do you know how expensive it is, your insurance, and how often do you go out, and the cost of gas these days? And you know that car has a problem again. And as long as- You don't want to give up the car. The fathers never want to give up the car. But we told him how much. He's like, whoa, how that's ridiculous. (laughs) And as long as we were giving the car to somebody that he knew and he trusted, and he would ask about it every now and then, is is the car treating you well? Is everything okay? Uh Do you need any help? It was like his pet dog, but it worked. You have to be able to laugh at all this stuff. And humor is the most important thing in my life. It's gotten me through everything. And as I said to you, I was this terrified kid who, if I broke a fingernail, I thought it was surgery. And I didn't realize (laughs) till I had written my book. Hot pants in Hollywood, which, by the way, was not my behavior. It was my wardrobe. Hot pants <laughs> were short shorts that we wore with tops. Anyway, um, and I wore it to a meeting and TV Guide wrote an article about it. And it, it got me a ton of publicity. And I'm so embarrassed now that I did it. But what the hey, heck? it got you business, probably. So got that's me. a good thing. TV Guide article and a lot of jobs. But anyway, um, humor is the only thing. And I didn't realize how resilient I was till I had to go through these three horrible years. But if you have a second, I can read you things not to do in the hospital. Yeah. Well, and I, before you do that, I would love yeah. to know a little bit more about how you find your sense of humor when you may not necessarily have it. Well, if you don't have a sense of humor, I feel for you. Watch a lot of comedy, see what makes you laugh. When I was writing, I would tell people who, who were good writers, but were not funny, get a partner. I mean, if you're not funny, I feel for you. It's tough. I, for some reason was always funny. I don't know why. And if I weren't, I do it to amuse myself, to tell you the truth, to get through life 
to amuse myself. I don't do it to make other people laugh. I do make other people laugh, but I don't care. It's really so I'm not bored. And I think you don't have a sense of humor. You have to steal it from comics and watch things. And, you know, for example, I know everybody loves Curb Your Enthusiasm. So as a writer, I can watch it and I can say out loud, oh, that's funny, but it doesn't make me laugh. There are certain people that make me laugh and I make myself laugh. And Ricky Gervais really makes me laugh. But um, when you're in the hospital, it's crucial. And there's not a lot to make you laugh in the hospital at times, right? My God, I was hooked up. I had swallowed this chopstick. And for seven days, they couldn't figure out what it was. And I was almost dying because wood does not show up on x-ray. And so they they had to get me down to where they could operate. But in the meantime, they would it was a teaching hospital and they would bring students in. And I heard them saying outside the door, you know, chopstick lady. And I would say, that's chopstick gal to you, young kids. You know, I would, <laughs> And I would walk out with the IV and everything and write in my chart. So they would take my chart away and take it up to the nurse's station because I was driving them crazy. But anyway, here are things to avoid in the hospital. Number one, do not watch movies where people die. It'll just depress and scare you more than anything. Oh, I watched ER for the first time when I was in the hospital. Scared Never. the living daylights out of me. Do not say things in jest like, do I have to slip my wrist to get help from anyone here? Oh, no, that, not That good. alarms them. And then they write in your chart that you're a psych, psych ward. That's right. Do not look in the mirror after 12 days because your hair gets matted in a way you cannot comb it out. It's like gross and sweaty and your skin is green. And then you turn like white. Don't look in the mirror. Do change arms for the IV because it's like a pin cushion. And when you're of a certain age, do not assume when you're lying drenched in sweat that it's hot flashes. It could be reactions to the meds and then the room is spinning around. So mention that to someone. Do not tear off the padded heated leg massagers, even if they're squeezing you to death, because they help with preventing blood clots. Besides, you learn to love them. They feel so good. You kind of miss them later on. Do not tell people they don't have to bother to call you all the time because you're going to miss it when they don't and the phone isn't ringing. The most important thing is do not, and I mean it, let a male aide take your temperature rectally. I don't think they do that anymore. (laughs) Oh, thank God. Another thing is in the exam of the first few days, they did a a mammography, they did all these things. And then after I had my laparoscopic surgery where they found this chopstick looking like the flag of Iwo Jima sticking up in my stomach, peritonitis, (laughs) a guy comes in, he says, okay, we're taking you for your mammogram. I said, what are you nuts? I just had surgery. He said, well, it says so in the chart. I said, I don't care what it says. I'm not going. You have to have an advocate there. I was an advocate for both my parents. I didn't have an advocate for myself. And that's why I became like this nut job writing things in the chart. I totally understand. Um, This was a a while back before the internet was more pervasive in hospitals, but I remember having a laptop and plugging it into the phone system and blowing the entire dashboard (laughs) in Danbury Hospital. <laughs> and when funny. I found that, I quickly take it out. And they're like, we can't figure out what's going on. I was like, that is so strange. There's something really funny. That would be good for a sitcom. <laughs> and the doctor would call it, it would come in and he would say, You're the only patient on this course. I was like the youngest patient on the orthopedic floor at the time. It'd say, You're the only patient I have to make an appointment with to come in to visit because I'm trying to like keep things going, you know, while back home and with Working my own business. But it was the only thing that kept me sane, whether because I was on probably all sorts of painkillers at the time and I didn't know it, but that was the only thing that kept me, you know, sane and focused myself. 
and and I was my advocate. My you no, know, my husband was great, but I think he was in shock. And I learned after the fact that my father-in-law, and this is a little slightly askew from from the elder care success, but I think it's important because our own healthcare comes into play in many different levels or, or points in our life. And I learned that my own father-in-law really didn't like me until. Oh. Yeah. I was like, we'd been married like a couple of years. I didn't oh. know that till after the fact. And he said, I learned from my husband. He said, your, my dad decided that he liked you in the hospital because you seem to go along like nothing was different. I was like, no, life, life doesn't stop because, you know, the, you know, what hits a fan, you just got to keep rolling. And he was so, well, but you don't know that you don't know that. Or maybe you do. When I was a kid, I was, I wasn't allowed to cross the main street till I was 12. I was the most fearful person alive. <laughs> and I, you know, I mean, Later in life, I was wandering around in China by myself. So who knows? But I didn't know any of this until I wrote my book. I looked back, I said, oh, my God, I'm like really resilient and strong. And I had no clue. And then I had cancer years later, and I decided to give it 20%. 80% was my real life. I always had bad hair. So my hair was going to fall out anyway. I had a couple great wigs. And I was like the best. And people were in (laughs) shock. Because I was this fearful, pathetic person who was upset about everything. And then I handled things. And you're so you awesome. I think it's really interesting how, how the stresses of life, whether it be your own or somebody you're caring for, all of a sudden brings out the Wonder Woman or, or Superman in us at times. Then We hope. Well, you know, I guess there are people who don't get there. But thankfully, I don't know too many of those. So. Well, the thing about taking care of your parents, as I said, as I had moved away, I'd gone to college and little by little, I went to, I wasn't allowed to really go. So I went to Northwestern, which was close to Milwaukee because they didn't want me to leave the house. I was this only overprotected child. Then I got to California. I Uh lived there and then I was married and then I lived in New York. But the great thing was getting to go back and spend quality time with my parents as an adult. And I was very lucky because I didn't have children. I didn't have a job and I could devote the time, which was priceless. I mean, I miss my parents every day. I know. And I dream about, every once in a while I dream about trying to save my daddy and I never can do it in the dream. It's very upsetting. It wakes me up. So yeah. There's nothing we can do to ultimately say we just, I've said a couple of times in different shows that we just hope that life is better if there is another side. And I hope, I wish there is, because I really want to see them again. And I dreamt about them the other day and it was such a good dream. I I loved it. And I'm, uh, I talk to them all the time. I don't know if other people do, but I I think a number of other people do, but I want you to come back and write the book on what's it like on the other side. So, Uh, well, (laughs) speaking of that, my mother was like the strongest person that ever lived and very forceful. And I said, if anybody can come back, she can. So we had this plan when she passed that she was going to come back. Her funeral was rainy and awful. And the minute the rabbi started to talk, the sun came out. Oh, that's my mother. But she hasn't come back. And I'm waiting. I don't understand why well, Maybe she'll come back. She's coming back in your stories. There's a uh, an experience. I wouldn't call it. Well, I may call it. It's, it's a celebrity experience that I didn't meet him personally. But Jonathan Lithgow had done a play, a one-man play in New York called Stories by Heart. And it was his story of, you know, talk about the relationship with a parent, how he, his dad used to tell these stories to him and his, his brothers and sisters when they were younger. And they became so much a part of his life over time that when his dad was dying, he decided to sit down with a book that his dad used to sit down with the kids and now read the stories to his dad mm. and play them out. And the show was 
just stole my heart, but it oh, was like you could be there with him. And here was a here was also an actor in the arts and communities who said that when the time came to help his parents, he had a number of siblings, and they said, "Well, you're between gigs; you can do it." So they just all ran and assumed, "Bloop, there you handle it." But well, people are brothers and sisters. I'm always told. I always say, "Guy, you guys are lucky," and they say, "No, it's always one of us who does it. It's usually the girl." You know, I had no choice. Well, I had a choice, but I didn't want it. I wanted to do it, but I mean. It's nice to have brothers and sisters to share it with, but most of the time, one person in the family seems to be the one. I think that that happens. It's just the personality that comes. Who's the leader that maybe not necessarily the leader, but the person that needs to, that the parents have relied on. You know, one of the other things, I know that you're a writer, but one aspect among others that a lot of people say help us is journaling. Is that something that that you did over the course of time and just, or just writing notes to yourself as you were going through this and even afterwards? No, that's kind of interesting because to me, journaling would be work because that's my job writing. (laughs) So when I wrote my book, I, I had written a diary once when I moved to New York. I had a few things there, but it was hard to remember stuff because I hadn't journaled and I had to, you know, look a lot of stuff up and everything. But I guess that is good. People say a gratitude journal is a wonderful thing. And every once in a while, I try meditating and doing that. But no, I I, uh, I didn't do that. I have to say, I think your your book was a bit of a meditative reading. It was like being a voyeur. <laughs> it's now, somebody very, else's life. It's great. I will say, I you know, when you're writing the book, you don't think anybody's going to be reading it, so you just write everything honestly. I wrote everything about everything, and and then later I thought, ooh, someone's going to read this. Fortunately, my parents had passed, so they didn't have to read about my ex escapades. <laughs> yeah, so I doubt if I could have written it when they were alive. And then certain people, famous people, I didn't name them, but you can guess. And everybody thinks my affair with the foreign movie star was Gerard Depardieu. I mean, you know me a little. Do you think I would go to bed with Gerard Depardieu? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't Gerard Depardieu, so there. Uh, we can guess, <laughs> but we we won't tell. Don't right? Guess. Won't right. Tell. <laughs> the mystery is part of the fun. There was another point where you had said earlier that your dad had passed. Now your mom was left over. I would say left over you and your mom. But your mom had dementia, correct? Yeah, my mom was perfectly fine. And then I was in Australia with a bunch of showbiz types. And I got a phone call from the place where she lived saying she was in the lobby looking for her mother. And I thought, oh, that was the first time I had a sense of her having anything like that. And little by little, it progressed. And so that year when I was in the hospital, she was in full blown, but I had these wonderful, as I said, Filipino aides come to take care of her. And she was, she could stay in her own apartment. The aides slept in the bedroom with her. And my mother was always extremely well taken care of and quaffed and made up. And every day she put her makeup on and her hair and she dressed beautifully. And it was really important to her to have a good looking aide if we had somebody with good teeth who looked good. And she prided herself on that. And then at one point, the aide called me and said, is a guy bothering your mother? I said, what do you mean? An older man there whose wife had died was making a move on my mother. She was a hottie. <laughs> yeah. So my mother, I had to say, no, mother, don't do it. You know, it was, that was kind of weird. I mean, but your mom was cognizant when your dad died. So she knew it wasn't like you had to tell her. Right. No, she was perfectly fine. In fact, we made the decision, both of us, to pull the plug towards the end with my dad, even though later she said we shouldn't have done it, which gave me terrible guilt. I know he wanted it. 
But then, uh, yeah, and she started to get vague when I was sick. And then when she passed, she was totally pretty much out of it. And the aides were there. And with my dad, I made the mistake of being in the room when he passed. And I don't advise anybody to do that because you see it and you literally see the spirit leaving. With my mother, they had me take a walk at the lake. Mm-hmm. And then when I came back, the hospice people told me. But prior to that, I said, Mother, you know, it's okay to go and everything. And she said, No, she didn't want to. And I said, Yeah, daddy will come and get you. And both I and the aide looked in the hall and we saw a shadow. The and stories I- of, of what happens. And I'm fascinated that you said you didn't want to be there with your dad as he passed. For me, and I know for some from some others, the, the, the beliefs in what to do and what not to do, everybody's got a different different perspective on that. But my biggest fear was not being there for my dad. Well, I slept in the hospital the last two nights when he was towards the end. My mom was there. I made her go home. I was in the shower. I said to myself, don't take this shower. He's going. Mm-hmm. got out of the shower. I went to the bed. It was, oh, he waited for me to be there and he passed, but I should have left right then. And I didn't. Yeah, and so I didn't want to go through that with my mom. Yeah. I slept my, with my mom right next to her, holding her hand that night. And then the next morning oh. I got up to go get her meds and, and to get my lead aid. And and as she might, the aide ran immediately to the room. She first, it was just instinctual. She, she didn't even mm. think about stopping where normally she would stop it in the kitchen for the meds. And she came back out and she says she passed. So my mom must have actually waited for me to leave that room because mm-hmm. I held her home and said, you know, a hand every, you know, night. And I just said, I'm here, mom. She had had a brain aneurysm, so she never really woke up, but she would always mm-hmm. squeeze my hand. I, I'd say, uh-huh. oh, it's Nance, I'm here. And I would hold her hand. She would squeeze it. So uh, that gave me some, I guess, some some sense of comfort knowing that she knew she wasn't alone. And that was also my own, that was my own personal kind of yeah. story. I always say this and it, it's, it's not funny, but to me, it's funny. When I get on a plane, I always say to myself, I'm sorry for the rest of you if the plane goes down, but this is the way I want to go. I won't know anything. I'll be gone. The plane will be going down. I'm really sorry for the whole other 300 people, but that's the way I want to do it. I don't want. I just to don't sad. want to see it happening. You know, I don't. Can you make sad. it really I don't fast? Care about that? Nah, even the the twenty seconds down is okay. I just don't want to be sick. Uh, yeah. Okay. Whole thing. And on that happy note, don't ever fly with me. Is <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can take the boat. I'll take the plane. All right, all right. <laughs> Sharks and water. People scary. out there will check the the roster of a plane to make sure Susan Silver is not on the plane. Yeah, that that's going to be my next job. <laughs> <laughs> I told you there's humor in everything. I agree. My sort of last point of humor with my mom was when I had gotten down that that day evening after she had had this major brain bleed that basically made her comatose. The ER doctor came into her room and explained what had happened. And of course, I'd already understood and like researched like to hell and back again about what had happened. And he said, what do you want to do? Because they wanted to take her off. And had to do brain surgery on her. Oh, did they have do not resuscitate your brain? They, I had a DNR, and but they didn't have physical access to it. But they accepted my request on the phone, thankfully. Sometimes and they don't now, you know. That's- sometimes they don't. But yeah. it's interesting. I And I don't know whether it's Florida or not, but where there seems to be a larger concentration of seniors, the yes. doctors seem to be pretty pretty aware of what to do and what not to do. And in, in our particular case, because I'm the POA and, and managed you know, medical director and everything else, and I was 1200 miles away, what I did in case I could not be reached or my sister could not be reached because she was the secondary one, I wrote a letter and had it notarized 
with my lead aide's name on it. So, and we had a very close relationship and very, we were constantly in touch with one another anyway. And said, was she living at home or was she in a place? No, no, I took my parents out of a care facility and that's for another show, <laughs> but they were at home with 24 seven care and somebody was always, always there. I was never, yeah. and sometimes two people depending upon the situation, yeah, yeah. but I made sure that in, in my absence that she could, she could make a decision for me and I would trust it. Oh, wow. That's amazing. But I, and it had never been contested, but, but they often listen to the lead aid when, when they needed to, and I wasn't there because, you know, I, I wasn't physically there and if they couldn't get a hold yeah. of me, but yeah. that's what I did. It may or may not be uh, considered a legal document, but we went and had it notarized and the two of us signed it. Wow. And that's, but we also had an extraordinary relationship and we still do in trust and communication. And that takes a lot of work to get there. How um, did you find it through an agency or? No, um, that was, I'm a pretty awesome networker. So <laughs> I will talk to anybody and everybody. And if I'm not happy with a care facility here, I would talk to people in McDonald's and tell them how horrible this care facility was. Oh my God. <laughs> and they what would say, you know, work, Nance? what were you doing before? What was I, what was I doing before? Yeah. Before the, the care work? Yeah. I worked in corporate governance. So I worked with some of the largest boards of directors and CEOs in, in the country and the world. So I knew it had to be firm and to communicate and sometimes step aside. But if we needed to get something done, I knew how to run to the finish line. But the interesting thing is that I was an introvert as a kid. I was known for in fourth grade, they thought something was wrong with me because instead of telling the teacher what I wanted to get done, I would tell the kid next to me, this is what you need to get done. So I, I just, I look back and said, I was a born manager. <laughs> right. That's right. You were, you were a delegator. I was a delegate. They just never knew it. <laughs> they have the silent CEO who got work done by other things in fourth grade. Yeah. <laughs> so that's been my background. But it all came into play. And, you know, I learned to ask questions. And, you know, you know, the same thing. You you learn by asking and then you make the assessment whether you think that the response is correct or not. And if not, then you go and get more information from other sources. So well, it's uh, a full time gig. I'll tell you, it's as I said, I would call every day, every night and every morning yeah. for my dad. And and it was always on my mind. And when I would fly in, he would always be sitting in the lobby with this little hat on because he wanted to greet me. And everybody knew that the daughter was flying in from New York to see him. And my dad couldn't keep his mouth shut in the care facility. I said, Dad, don't tell anybody that I'm coming because I would refer to myself as the wicked witch from the north. Oh, they hated down. me. Oh, are yeah, you kidding me? So me. I would fly down and I said, Dad, don't tell anybody. Chris. Yeah, they knew like three months in advance that, you know, when I was going to be there, that's when I would come down once every three months, not every month at the time. But, you know, as the time goes on, we, we get there more frequently. So I, I couldn't sneak in as much as I How would. long a time period were your parents ill? I was just, well, I was signed to be co-trustee in POA probably 20 years beforehand. And then things started to happen financially with a financial advisor. And I had quest a lot of questions there. And I finally told my dad, who was assigned as the co-trustee, and I said, Dad, you do not want to want this to be a co, me to be a co with somebody who's not who's not really dedicated towards your well-being. I took over and then, you know, we I fired the financial advisor. It took me three years to unravel the mess that he had made. At times I was on the phone sometimes three or four times a day. Oh my God. In the, in the my beginning. daddy was so precise. He had everything written down. I knew every where everything was and everything. And he was like obsessive about it, which is a blessing because I learned to 
prepare for myself. And I have friends now who are not in such good shape. And I say, don't you have a budget? Don't you? I mean, who lives without a so budget? Many, so the same, my dad wrote everything down. It was very organized. He unfortunately trusted the wrong people. Ah, uh, well, that's a whole nother. I mean, that really should be a, a separate show into itself. But he he trusted people who were kind and good to him, but were doing things that were maliciously um, or or stupidly uh, self serving to the outside individuals. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. you know, it, it 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 happens a lot more often than we like to admit. When you don't have family, it's tough. One of the tips that I suggest that everybody do is as we age, we have our, our network of individuals that we trust and rely and we build good relationships that are close to our age. Always network down in age. Build those relationships oh. with younger people. We'll stay younger in the long run. Oh, yeah, no, 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 for sure. Even my doctor is retiring now, which is a real yeah. pain. We could go on and on and on with hot pants in Hollywood. <laughs> and I'm not sure what that looks like as we get older, but maybe I don't well, something funny when I when We don't have a picture here, but when I... Um, I was in the TV guide and, and they had a picture of me. So when my book party was uh, three years ago, my friend was giving me the book party and he's the president of a big, huge cosmetic company. And I said, should I wear hot pants? He said, are you crazy? <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, there is no. So I don't wear them anymore. But in the last two years, I have only worn shirts with no underwear and walking around the house. So it's going to be difficult putting underwear and getting out of here now. Yeah. <laughs> TMI, right? No. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> well, Susan, this has been such a delight. I've, I've loved spending time with you. you. And I think that everybody else will learn something for sure. At least the top 10 things to never do in the hospital. That's right. Never, never. Yeah. And, and <laughs> thank goodness we now have thermometers that test our forehead That's temperatures. Too now. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, how can you forget? Maybe you walk into every room and like they're just your right. forehead. I never even took a notice of that's right. It's a new thing. Right. So you have you have a great day and thank you very much. That was uh, fun. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021 Caremanity LLC.